90s, uh, a man named Mike Warnke was something of a Christian celebrity in the United States, uh, having claimed to have had a sort of dramatic conversion uh, to Christ from the midst of a satanic cult. Uh, Warnke became something of a self-professed expert in attempts to try and win people who were caught up in the occult. Turns out, though, uh, Mr. Warnke was not uh, all he claimed to be. And after this big investigation, I think it was by uh, a couple of large Christian magazines in the United States, it was revealed that not only had this man never actually been in a satanic cult in the first place, it was also discovered that he had for years been using his fame to seek monetary financial benefit. So here's a man who was lodging sneaky expenses claims, false receipts, doing all he could to seek financial gain. That's not an uncommon story, is it? From the uh, indulgences prior to the Reformation right through to modern TV evangelists, Christian history is peppered with these sorts of things, peppered with instances of Christians' false and abusive attitudes to wealth. Which kind of begs the question, doesn't it? You and I, we know we're not to do these things. We know we're not supposed to be stealing, hopefully. We know that we're not supposed to be cheating our way through life. But how is it that we, as Bible-believing Christians, how should we regard the material things of this life? I mean, the people in, in your life, the people around us, surely they, they, they're obsessed in some ways with, with these things, obsessed with the desire for wealth. Is it acceptable for, for you and for me to be like that? And if it is not acceptable, then how should we regard money and wealth as Christians? Well, last week... Um, we saw Paul say something uh, in regard to finance and ministers. Uh, well, this week we see the Apostle Paul cast the net wider, don't we? And he says something about a more general Christian approach to money. Before we look at this tonight, can I say this to you? What we're going to see this evening is shocking. Like what we'll see tonight from God's Word is, 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 is revolutionary. It could hardly be more countercultural. So I would encourage you this evening to approach what God says here prayerfully, to do this even now, asking God to help us accept what it is that He is calling for from His church, His covenant community, what He is calling for from us. With these things said, I would ask you and invite you to turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As we continue our series, we get to verse 3 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. (coughs) Excuse me. The first thing that we need to note here is the error of having money as the motivation in religion. The error of having money as the motivation in religion. Okay, <coughs> excuse me. Um, 
Okay, uh, now that we're, we've covered almost the entire uh, letter, the first letter to Timothy, if somebody tomorrow at work asks you, okay, so uh, you're studying First Timothy chapter 6, you're studying First Timothy at church, what is this letter all about? How are you going to answer that, that person? What would you say this letter is all about now that we've worked our way through it? Hopefully you would say that, that Paul here is giving instructions really about how to organize and structure the church in light of the glory of the gospel of God. Hopefully you would, you would say something like that. Perhaps, though, you would also say that these instructions that he has been giving Timothy, they have arisen out of a problem, haven't they? They've arisen out of heresy and false teaching that had gripped the church in Ephesus. Maybe you would say, you would speak about the false teaching. Well, here in these verses, it's to that central theme that's really dominated Paul's thinking. He returns to this theme of false teaching. And I honestly believe I honestly believe what he says about the false teaching here, it is important for for you to grasp, for me to grasp, and for our church, our congregation to get to grips with. So what does he say about the false teaching in Ephesus? Well, first thing he does is he mentions the essential problem of false teaching. Do you see that in verse 3? He says that the main problem here was that these men in the congregation, what does he say? They they were teaching things that did not agree with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So straight away tonight, do you see what we are given by God? We are given a test. We are given, in fact, the test. We are given the gauge of all Christian teaching. When we walk into a church, how do we know that teaching is acceptable? How do we know that it is teaching that delights the Lord our God? Well, does it or does it not agree with the breathed out word of God? Does it agree with Christ's word? Does it agree with scripture? If not, what is it? It is false teaching. So that is the essential problem of the false teaching in Ephesus. But then we are also told of the consequences of that false teaching. Now, if you look at verse 5, we see that as these men, these these teachers, so-called teachers, as they promoted unbiblical controversies in this church, do you see what happened in Ephesus? Look, Look at this. Isn't it informative? We are told that constant friction arose. Friends, we're seeing there in Ephesus what we have just seen in the church in Scotland and what we will see, I'm sure, in many churches throughout the globe. That if a church departs from the authority of word of God, what happens to that church? It will one day inevitably split. So we see in Ephesus the consequences, well, we see the problem, they depart from the word, the consequences, there's friction. But then I think most importantly, 
we note here the motivation for this false teaching. Now, just listen eh, as I read verse 5 to you. Listen to what we're told here. <coughs> we're told that these men thought that godliness was the means to what? <laughs> Financial gain. Do you see what we're being told? Do you see what we're learning here? These men are in it for what? They're in it for the readies. They're in it for cash. They're in it for the money. It kind of begs the question, doesn't it? How, how, how are they making their money in the church, these teachers? Well, we went through Acts not long ago, didn't we? Now, do you remember in the book of Acts, eh, the story of the riot that hit Ephesus at the time of the, the church being set up. Do you remember it? I hope you remember the riot in Ephesus. Do you remember? It was Aristarchus and Gaius, I think. They were dragged through the streets of Ephesus, taken through the amphitheater, weren't they? Now here's, here's the test for you. Here's the question. Do you remember who started the riot? Do you remember? It was merchants in that city. Guys who felt threatened by Christianity. It was merchants who were, oh, they were making a killing out of selling these little trinkets and little shrines of local gods, right? Maybe, maybe it's that that's happening here with the false teachers. Like maybe these men are beginning to, to commercialize the, the Christian faith. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is that these men are charging a fortune to speak in different parts of the city. But surely, regardless of how they're making the money, what is most disturbing of all is how they viewed the Christian faith. Let me read that line to you again. What is it? They thought godliness was a means to financial gain. Do you see the error? They're not saying that godliness is the, the be-all and end-all for the Christian They're not saying that godliness is the goal that we are striving for. No, they are believing worse, worse. They are teaching the Christian church that material gain is the goal. Can you imagine telling, teaching the the people of God that, 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 that financial prosperity is available from God if they will just live uprightly before him? Now, surely tonight you are thinking the same thing that I am thinking. It is as though Paul, the apostle, has penned his letter just to the 21st century church. Isn't it so relevant, this this message? I mean, think of the situation of the church across the globe today. Millions and millions and millions of people being convinced... That the gospel, that it's not a message about forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, but people being convinced that it is a message of earthly prosperity. And how through their own giving to churches, and through their own moral perfection and performance. Let me say this to you tonight. I firmly believe that this here is the greatest heresy that is affecting the 21st century church. Now, we have seen this time and time again at London City Presbyterian Church. People who come through the door and who speak to myself and speak to the other elders and speak to you, I'm sure, 
And, and, and they talk about how the health and wealth prosperity message is having an effect right across the globe. It is destroying congregations right across our world. Now what do we do about this? What do you do about this? Let me suggest two things. One, we resolve to pray. Do we pray about this? Because we should. On a Thursday evening, as we gather for prayer, on a Sunday before the service, as we gather to pray, as you at home, morning and evening, pray and bow before God, we should resolve to pray and pray against the prosperity gospel. We should resolve to pray for a rediscovery of biblical truth. But a second thing, which is maybe harder for us to hear. We need to tonight examine our own hearts. I mean, is it football to think, well, we would never make this mistake, would we? We'd never, we'd never think money is the, the goal of our free. We'd never do that. But haven't we? I mean, can it really be said of us that we have never begun to think of God as a good luck charm? Have we never sort of slipped into thinking, well, if I read my Bible and if I pray, then, then surely this financial situation will work itself out. And, and, and surely God will. He will prosper me at, at work. It's closer to home than we might think, is it not? Friends, again, as we did this morning, we must tonight fix our eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we must realize once again that our Lord did not go through all of that, all of that horror and humiliation, that you and I might be wealthy. He went through all of that so that you and I, through even the the suffering of the Christian life and the difficulties of the Christian life and the poverty of the Christian life, that we one day might be perfected in his glorious image. A second thing that we must note in these verses is the error of having money as our motivation in life. The error of having money as our motivation in life. Okay, having dealt with one false view of a finance and wealth, if we skip down a bit in this portion of scripture, I think we see Paul address another error to avoid. If you look at verse six, uh, sorry, verse nine rather, verse nine, you see that the apostle speaks of a category, another category of people. Those, depends what translation you have, but he speaks of people who want to get rich. Or if you're using the ESV, I think it is, he speaks of those who desire to be rich. Now, be careful, friends. Be careful and notice what Paul does not do here. Paul does not speak out against those who are wealthy. I mean, he, he's not speaking out against those who are rich. He is not saying that there is anything inherently wrong with people being born into money or something like that. 
Now, who is it? What is it he's saying? Look at it. It is those who desire. So you see the differences. Those who are longing to be desperate to be wealthy. Now, what did I say at the start of the sermon? I said this was shocking. Would you not agree with that assessment? Paul is speaking out against those who desire to be wealthy. I mean, is that not the fabric of the society in which we live? People desiring to be rich. Is it not the foundation stone of our whole culture? Look at where we are, people, come on. If we were to go outside this evening, what would we see? I mean, we're in the heart of one of the biggest financial districts in the whole of the world. We go outside, we see these buildings, we see the whole infrastructure that's based on this. And a people's desire to get wealthy, a people's desire to be rich. Come on, is that not true of the people in your life as well? Those who are unbelieving, your unbelieving friends and family, what's true then? What do they want more than anything else? They want to be wealthy, they want to be rich. And isn't it shocking? Because what is Paul saying to the church? What is God saying to you? not to be like that we're not to be like that so we need to unpack it notice first of all the repercussions of desiring to be rich if you look at verse 9 and and please pay attention to verse 9 if you do that notice three things that we fall into if we desire to be rich do you see it (coughs) we fall into temptation we fall into a trap what's the third one we fall into many foolish and harmful things i i ask you this do you see who is standing in the shadows of those verses what is it temptation a trap and foolishness do you see who's in the shadows it is not our god who tempts us is it and who has paul just spoken of a setting snares was a couple of chapters ago and setting traps you see the message for us friends satan he is ever ready he is ever eager to entice the people of god away from the cross away from the church and he is ready always to use wealth he's ready to use riches to do that then notice the results of desiring to be rich in English, we've got that expression, don't we? When, think, <laughs> when, when we're struggling with things, uh, we, we say that we are drowning. My wife will say to me that she's drowning in housework. And I will respond, I'm, I'm drowning in, I don't know what I'm drowning in, not housework in a way, that's for, for sure. Now you see that, that Paul uses a similar idea here, same verse, verse 9. He says that a desire to be rich, it plunges people drowns people and into two things do you notice we drown we we are plunged into ruin and we are plunged into destruction do you see what he's saying what is the final scene for those who are unbelieving and desiring to be wealthy the final scene it is ruin it is a spiritual decay in this life but it is destruction It is devastation in the life to come. And then we must notice, most importantly, the reason that desiring to be wealthy is so wrong. 
Andrew Fink was in the church uh, last Sunday, was he not? Um, most of us know Andrew Fink. Andrew was a, a member of the church for 18 months or so, and he was staying with us for a few days. It's wonderful to see him, but he is no longer a member with us because he has moved off to live in the Ukraine. Except he has not moved off to live in the Ukraine. As Andrew was very adamant to, to point out that Ukrainian people get very, very annoyed if ignorant Scottish people call the place they live the Ukraine. It is not apparently the Ukraine. It is quite simply Ukraine. No definite art. Now, there is here in front of us another often misused, misquoted phrase. And you've heard it, perhaps the people in your life and your families have used it as well. I mean, people say, don't they, money is the root of all evil. Have you heard people say that to you? Money is the root of all evil. But that's not what Paul says. And I think if we notice the difference of what Paul says here, we see the great error that we are dealing with here. Now, what is it that Paul says? Look with me. It is not money is the root of all kinds of evil, but it is that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, do you see the the difference, friends? Do you see why this covetousness, this desire for wealth is so utterly wrong. Do you see what it does? It supplants the love of Christ that should be evident in our hearts. Do you see? It pushes out, it replaces the love of our eternal triune God that should characterize our life. What is it that Jesus says in Matthew's gospel? You simply cannot love both things. You cannot love both God and money. And so I ask you this tonight. We we said a moment ago that Paul is speaking of a category of people. Can I ask you tonight, do you recognize yourself in this? Do you perhaps even fall into this category of people? Is there within you a deep, almost unsatiable desire for wealth? Well, then one notice the danger. He says that this has caused some to wander away from the faith. And then the second thing we must surely do is pray. I mean, don't we pray tonight? Don't you see your sin in this? Don't we repent before our God? And don't we ask him tonight for a much, much greater love of the suffering servant, a much greater love of his son. And then we'll end this evening with a third thing, the formula for great gain. We've seen tonight the errors or some of the errors to be avoided with the Christian's attitude to finance. What's the positive side of this though? I mean, how should we live? How should we view money. Well, I, I've said before from the pulpit that throughout school I was utterly hopeless at maths. Utterly hopeless at maths. But even I can recognize a formula when I see one. 
Friends, would you look with me at verse 6? Paul speaks of what it is that you and I should be striving for. Let me read it to you. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Is that not a wonderful formula? Godliness plus contentment. It equals great gain. Now, you and I, after this morning, we, we, we know, don't we, how godliness comes about. It comes about only in a saving personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It only comes with this ongoing striving after him. What about the other side of this? Contentment. How do we find contentment? Well, we know how it doesn't come about, don't we? When Catherine and I uh, first got married uh, 12 years ago or, or so, we decided quite quickly to, uh, to purchase a car. And uh, I became obsessed with the search for a car. I uh, spent all my time looking at car magazines and uh, car websites. I found myself thinking my spare time about which sort of car I wanted. And we bought a car. And you know what happened? A couple of weeks after that, I started to think about a holiday. And I became obsessed with this. And I would look at magazines about holidays and we'd look at websites of holidays. And, and, and I would find myself thinking in my spare time about where I wanted to go. Did you see the point? The contentment is never, ever, ever found in the material things of this life. It is never found in the material things of this life. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says this. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money. So how do we find contentment, friends? Well, surely you see that this is one of the effects and outworkings and benefits of the gospel of God. Friends, do you see that tonight? Do you see that we are not only found to be godly, but we can find contentment. How? In whom? In Christ Jesus. That we can truly be satisfied by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Friends, do you see that that is true? Do you see what God can do? That as we mature in our faith, as there is an increasing work of the Holy Spirit in us, what happens? See these material things they begin to fade away. We mature, these things diminish, they dilute, they die out. Why? Because as we grow in peace, we see more and more and more of the beauty and the splendor, the magnificence and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find ourselves content in all circumstances. Why? Because we know no matter how hard they are, no matter how difficult these things become, we know that they are ordained by a God, a triune God who loves us so, so much. Friends, you see that what we've looked at tonight is radical, don't you? I mean, this 
attitude to finance, to worldly things, it is revolutionary. And therefore you see the opportunity it affords you, don't you? If we embrace this, if you and I and London City Presbyterian Church, if we really live like this, then surely that is noticed and it leads to conversation. And what will we then be able to tell people? We will be able to tell them of the greatest bit of business that has ever been done. We will be able to tell them of the great exchange where the Lord Jesus Christ, he is taken from us, our sin and our wickedness and our iniquity and what have we received in return? Riches. The riches of his forgiveness. The riches of everlasting life with Christ. Friends, tonight, praise your God if you are a Christian. Praise him that in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven for your covetous heart. But let us renew our focus and a desire after Christ. Why? So that the people in your life might notice, they might ask you, and that they might seek first the kingdom of God. Friends, let's pray.